Lord Jesus, we thank you today for your presence in this place. We love you, and we certainly know that you love us. We just praise you, Lord, for your goodness. We just thank you for your incredible, unconditional love. You take us as you find us. You never reject or condemn us. This is a love that we're immersed in every single moment of every day. And Lord, we truly do. We want to thank you today for it. Thank you for your goodness, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great, great is your faithfulness. We woke up today in steadfast love. We woke up today in mercy without end. We woke up today in the unfailing commitment of a loving God who is faithful to us, irrespective of our unfaithfulness. He is faithful. We want to thank you for that. Jesus, we love you. We really do. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. What a wonderful moment. Moments we're having together in God's presence. Isn't it great to be together today in his house? And, um, you know, just as I came out into the service this morning, I don't want to embarrass them, right? But um, friends, Simon and Linda, who used to come to the church probably nearly 20 years ago, Simon, 20 years ago, just turn up today with their family. They're just visiting Dale and Allison, who are behind. It's Linda is Allison's sister, and Dale and Allison used to be our youth leaders, which is incredible. I tell you, how they, how they led us is a miracle. Jason was in the youth group. I mean, my goodness me. But look at us now. Look at us now. We're all back together. That's fantastic. But um, do you know, Simon, as I was just thinking about you and Linda, just to encourage you, to give you just an encouragement from, from the Lord, I just felt him say, say this, you know, that there's nothing random or by chance in your future, in the future of your lives, in the future of your family. Your future is ordered it's ordered by God. It really is. Every day, every moment. Now, it's hard for us to understand that. It's hard for us to compute that. But God says it's ordered. It's already taken care of. And I was just reminded of Psalm 37. And I want to give you this psalm. You probably already know it. It's, it's a wonderful word over your lives over your children's lives, over your family, and over your future. It says this, the steps of a good man, and you are a good man, mate. You are a good man. That's what God calls you. That's, what he, that's, what he, that's how he describes you. The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord. And he delights in his way. The delight of the Lord is over your lives. The delight of God is in your way as a family. It's his favor, his goodness, and his blessing. Though he fall, and we all fall in various ways, though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down. For the Lord upholds him with his hand. I have been young 
and now I am old. Yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed or descendants begging for bread. I believe that's the word of encouragement to you guys this morning. Everything's ordered. Nothing random or by chance. The Lord delights. He really does. He delights in your way. And every day on from here is going to be an expression of that delight over your life. Amen. Amen. Bless you. Fantastic. Well, this morning, we are going to continue on in this series that we're in, New Life in Christ. And over the last several weeks in this series, we've been focusing our time around a small segment of verses, really, where Paul brilliantly encapsulates the wonder of the gospel in his message to Titus to frame and structure our thoughts as we've looked at Paul's words to Titus. We've drawn four simple points from four verses in Titus chapter 2 that really sets out the work of God's grace in our lives. Firstly, we've said that God's grace rescues us in that it saves us from sin. How many people are glad that Jesus came into your life and rescued you from the power of sin, broke its power? Oh my God, I remember the day when he rescued me from sin. What a joy it is to know the power of God's grace in that it rescues us from sin. Then secondly, we've looked at how God's grace reforms us in that it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. Then thirdly, we've noted, and this is where we've come to today, and this is what we're going to look at certainly today and maybe on from here in the weeks to come, how God's grace rewards us as it gives us eternal hope. And then as a final point, we see from Paul's words to Titus how he assures us that God's grace redeems us in that it makes us his very own. A grace that rescues us, a grace that reforms us, doesn't leave us as it finds us, but it reforms our lives. A grace that rewards us and a grace that redeems us. What amazing grace this is. Today, we're going to concentrate on this third point of how God's grace rewards us as it gives us eternal hope. Let me read to you again from Titus chapter 2, from verse 11 through to verse 14. And here, let's remember that Paul is summing up the past, the present, and the future in light of what Jesus Christ has done as a result of God's gift of grace through him. Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through to verse 14 says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. We should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope, and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. You know, it never ceases to amaze me how Paul can say so much and yet write so little. In these four verses that we've looked at over recent weeks, a vast amount of truth regarding our lives is being laid before us. One of the things that Paul makes clear that we need to understand from reading his words in Titus chapter 2 in these four verses is that he is picturing our position within God's eternal purpose in Christ Jesus. 
We've seen over recent weeks how Paul talks about the practical power of God's grace. Under that second point, grace reforms us in that it teaches us to say no to ungodliness. That's the practical day-to-day power of God's grace in our lives. But Paul doesn't just show us a practical power of grace working in our lives in the everyday nitty-gritty issues. Paul also wonderfully shows us our position in this grace, our position before God, our position in life. Paul, here in his words to Titus, we could say, shows us a middle moment of time. He shows us that we are positioned in this middle moment of time in relation to God's eternal purpose. Because in the verses that we've read, Paul points out that we are standing between two appearances. The word appeared, past tense, and the word appearing, future tense, are on Paul's mind when he delivers this word to Titus. Paul speaks of Jesus' first appearing in verse 11 by saying, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. This, to Paul, is an indisputable fact in history. In the past, Jesus Christ has come into time as God's Son to deliver salvation to all men everywhere. And then, on from this, Paul also speaks of Jesus' second appearing in verse 13, where he says, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing, future tense, of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, Paul now is not looking to the past. Paul is looking to the future where he sees the imminent return of Christ Jesus for his church to the earth, where we will be called up to meet him in the sky. The dead will be raised first, and then the living will ascend to meet him in the air. What a glorious moment. Glorious moment. It will be. When Paul looks behind him, He sees the grace of God bringing salvation through Jesus Christ, through his sacrifice, through his death on the cross and his resurrection. But it doesn't end there because when Paul looks forward onto a future horizon, the scene is glorious. He sees the glory of God moving towards a hopeless world when salvation will be complete and where Jesus will return to this earth and the very kingdoms of this world will ultimately become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Now there's a lot in between that which we haven't got time to go into this morning. But I tell you now, what an expectation to live with. What a blessed hope to hold in our hearts. These two appearings, the first appearing of grace and the second appearing of glory for which we all eagerly await, formulate this blessed hope that Paul talks about that we're rewarded with by grace that we hold in our hearts. Do you know one in four scriptures within the New Testament focus and center around the second coming and elements and aspects of that second coming of Christ. The emphasis and the expectation of the church, the early church, was on this imminent return for which they waited with great expectation in their hearts. The writer to the Hebrews points in his writings to these two appearings of Jesus And the distinct purpose of both in God's eternal plan for our lives. Let's look at Hebrews 9 verse 26 to verse 28. It says this, 
he then would have had to suffer, talking about Jesus, would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the end of the ages, he has appeared, past tense, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, and as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly, to those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear, future tense, a second time, apart from sin, for salvation. Our lives are sandwiched wonderfully between grace and glory. Grace, as we look back, we see it saving us, transforming us, enriching our lives, saving grace as we look back and as we look down the corridor of time. And we do not know when that moment will be, but the imminent return of, of Christ to this earth will take place. We are to eagerly expect it, look for it, we're sandwiched between the grace of God and the glory of God. And it's to envelop our mind's eye. It's to envelop and generate great expectation in our hearts. This is the incentive to live godly. This is the incentive and the power to live in this abundant life that Jesus has provided. It comes from looking back with gratitude to the grace of God and the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. And it also comes as a result of looking forward in blessed hope to our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who will appear a second time for our complete salvation. Now let's think for a moment just about these two appearings that we live between, this middle moment that we're in, because the first appearance of grace is very different from this second appearing of glory. We know that in that first appearing, Jesus was shrouded in humiliation, rejection, and pain. From the very first moment that he was conceived, suspicion and scandal hung over the claims of Mary, this virgin, this young, pure woman that had been visited by an angel and told that she would be overshadowed by the power of the Holy Spirit and the seed within her womb would be the very Son of God. It was all shadowed in humiliation, shame and scandal. And then on from there, they moved to Bethlehem. And here they can't find any room to bring this Christ child into the earth. And he's born in a dirty stable and laid in an animal feeding trough for his crib. He comes. The, the shepherds come. The wise men come. And there seems to be a moment where they can settle and a moment where they can have peace. And then suddenly... There's the order from an evil, wicked king, Herod, to murder tens of thousands of babies, all in an attempt to destroy this newborn king, this Christ, God made flesh, coming into our world before he even gets to his third year. And in all of these events... In all of this humiliation, in all of this shame, prophetic word from Old Testament witnesses and Old Testament prophets who had foreseen the arrival of the Savior is being fulfilled one after another. 
his birth in Bethlehem, their, their exile to Egypt, even the period of him being in Egypt for two years, it's fulfilling prophetic word that God had previously spoken. And Jesus, even as a baby and as an infant, is fulfilling prophetic word after prophetic word. But it's shrouded in humiliation after Egypt. They go to Nazareth. And Jesus grows up in Nazareth. The Bible tells us he grew in stature and in wisdom. In a negative environment in which he lived. Nazareth had an awful reputation of nothing good coming out of it. And the Son of God, the Son of Man, is living in that community. Under the negative environment that was all around him. Then on from there, the pleasure of the Father's on him. And he starts to minister, anointed by the Spirit. And what does he do? He goes out into his community, wherever men and women are, in the highways and byways of life. And he just pours out this grace. He pours out this unconditional love. He releases people from their fears. He casts out devils that had bound and imprisoned people. He heals them of their sicknesses. And he serves people in a tireless way, day and night. If you just look at the agenda, the timetable alone, it seems exhausting. Day and night into the early hours, pouring out his life. He'd come, he said, in his own words, not to be served, but to serve. And boy, did he serve. He gave everything to anyone and everyone. But at the end of it all, he's taken by the hands of wicked, man and, wicked men and crucified on the cross. But this, even this darkest moment was as a result of the predetermined plan and purpose of God in his life. But that first appearance of Christ coming into our world is shrouded in darkness and humiliation. And yet, in the midst of it all, on the cross, he said, it is finished. It is finished. He brought closure to the law. He brought closure to every element of the law that condemned us. He brought closure in his sacrifice to the power of the grave and death itself. He finished his work and the finishing of his work brought about a new beginning. And the new beginning is the blessed hope that we hold in our hearts. The new beginning is that we are brand new creatures in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. But that first appearing was shrouded, shrouded in shame and pain and humiliation but it's only half the story it's only half the story because the second appearing now that we turn our attention to is an appearing of glory the appearing for which we eagerly await and when you look at the second appearing and the bible gives us details about this second appearing that's going to take place that our world is heading towards. When we look at this second appearing, it in no way resembles the first. His second appearing will not be in weakness. It will not be in humiliation. Paul shows us this in verse 13 of Titus chapter 2. He puts it like this. The glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. This appearing is not going to be in humiliation. This uh, second appearing, this imminent return of 
Christ Jesus in the eternal plan of God for all of our lives is not going to be shrouded by shame or hidden away. It's going to be glorious. That is the words that Paul uses. It is going to be a glorious return. And this is the blessed hope that we hold in our hearts that we are to look towards. That's what Paul tells us. He's not returning as Jesus, the carpenter from Nazareth. And there's not going to be any question marks as to his identity. Is he John the Baptist? Is he Elijah? Is he Isaiah? Is he Jeremiah? Who is this man? He's just Joseph's son. No, there's not going to be any question about his identity in this second appearing. Because Paul declares that he is coming as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our response is to look toward it. Our response to this wonderful declaration that Paul gives to us of the imminent return of Jesus Christ to the earth is to eagerly anticipate it, to wake up, to wake up every day with the joyous expectation that Christ's return is on the horizon, that we are heading towards it. You see, when we have this blessed expectation, it gives us correct perspective for the future. It really does. It really helps us to correctly see time and the events of our lives and put them properly in their place. This blessed hope is a bit like seeing a picture on a jigsaw puzzle on the box of a jigsaw puzzle and then watching God take each piece and carefully put it together so that a, a, a picture emerges slowly before our eyes. We've seen the big picture when you look at Scripture. We've heard all of the promises. We understand it and it's generated a blessed hope within us. And now we get to sit and watch and see God take each piece and put it together before our very eyes until Christ's return turns. You look around the world. You look at the events that are happening. You look at all of the, all of the confusion and all of the chaos and all of the turbulence. And it, it reels from peace to uncertainty to calm to fear. And our world is constantly toiling between extremes. But God's word is certain. We are not those without hope. We have blessed hope in this world because our expectation is set and framed on the imminent return of Jesus Christ to our world. When we read about Paul's life, you, you study Paul's life in, in the scriptures, you see that he examined everything about life in light of this blessed hope that f was a flame in his heart. And we too can live like that. All of the events of our life can be framed and our perspective and our decisions can be shaped in light of his return. The word of God in many different ways, when you look through it, directs us to live in the immediate, in light of what we know, in the ultimate. Never let the immediate immerse you in its problems and in its difficulties and, and in its confusion and in its chaos. We have seen in this blessed hope, what ultimately will happen in the purpose of God for this world and for our lives. This is the powerful role that faith takes in our hearts. 
where from the present immediate, we can rejoice in our ultimate hope that we hold in our heart. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this, Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Paul had this blessed hope. We hold this blessed hope in our hearts. In a world where the picture is constantly changing, our picture holds true and is constant through all of the changes that's in our world. We can look beyond the immediate to the ultimate and this gives us great hope. With this we can find comfort with this, we can comfort one another, the Bible says. And this was the perspective that Paul had in relation to his life and in relation to everything that happened around him. He always saw beyond the immediate into the ultimate. We hear of this when he wrote his letter to the Corinthians the Corinthian church. He wanted to encourage them because the world in many ways was pressing in on them and they were struggling with this hope that they held in their heart of Christ's imminent return and the very real struggles of the world around them. But Paul encouraged them. Even though he was outwardly perishing, he declared, he was inwardly renewed. Even though he faced afflictions of many kinds, he focused on the exceeding greatness of God's glory in Christ Jesus. Even though he was always surrounded by the temporary needs of life, he kept looking towards the eternal. Blessed hope enabled him to never lose heart or to faint. Even in the midst of immense difficulty, Paul had this life within him that was abundant, that kept his expectation for Christ strong. Because hope is like that telescope that brings the eternal into the immediate. And you become the recipient of great blessing as a result of it. Listen to the power of hope in Paul's heart as he writes to the church at Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 to verse 18, and then we'll go into verse, uh, sorry, we'll go into chapter 5 as well. It says this, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory, while we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Then 2 Corinthians 5, just leading into this, verse 1 to verse 11 says this, but he continues, for we know that our earthly house, this tent is destroyed. If our earthly house, this tent is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation which is from heaven. Indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life or immortality. Now, he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. For we must all appear 
before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are no, well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. Those are words of a man that has undefeatable hope. A hope that does not allow life circumstances to take away his vision of God. Life was immensely hard for the Apostle Paul, immensely hard for the early church, but the power of this blessed hope burned in their hearts and enabled them to contend with the world that seems so crushing at times. Now, as we think about this blessed hope for which we eagerly await, it doesn't cause us to retire. It doesn't cause us to check out and just put our feet up. And this is the challenge. We're coming to the end of the service this morning. This is the challenge, the exciting challenge for all of us today. This blessed hope that we hold in our heart, this eager expectation for which we await that will only be fulfilled when Christ returns enables us to work whilst we wait. It enables us to work whilst we wait. Whilst Paul was waiting, readying himself for the next part of the journey, leaving this earth and entering the presence of God forevermore. He worked whilst he waited. That's what we see in what we've read in 2 Corinthians. Because whilst he had an eternal vision and an incredible understanding about mortality being put off and immortality being put on, he lived to persuade men. Verse 11 says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. Paul wasn't just looking to check out of earth. Even though he knew that there was a glorious future awaiting all who are in Christ Jesus eternally. No, whilst he was on this earth, he worked to persuade men. On another occasion, he says, I've become all things to all men that I might win some. Oh, the, the striving of this man just to get out into his world and tell others about this wonderful, glorious, blessed hope that we have in Christ Jesus. Paul went out into his world. And the message that we simply hold in our hearts as we meet people relates to the first appearing when Christ came into our world, offering salvation to all men. And it also relates as we look forward into the future in relation to Christ's imminent return, when he'll wrap everything up. C.S. Lewis writes something wonderful in relation to this wonderful hope in our hearts and in relation to the second coming of Jesus and what it does for us. He says this, if you read history, you will find that Christians who did the most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think about the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. When we have an understanding of our blessed hope, of the imminent return of Christ Jesus. And we're waiting with that expectation. It generates us. It generates in us a desire to work in the harvest field, to reach men and women for Christ. It really does. It really does.
This blessed hope empowers us to reach our world for Christ. After Jesus had risen from the dead, Acts chapter 1 tells us this, that he spent time with his apostles for 40 days, 40 days. Through many infallible proofs, the Bible says, he showed them that it was him in their midst. Christ Jesus, this is the gospel, where the people believe it, argue with it, and fight you for it. The truth is, and this is it, Christ died on the cross. He died. He died. Oh, let's go back a bit. He was born of a virgin. That's number one. You can believe it or you can reject it. He was born of a virgin. Number one. Number two, he died physically on the cross. He was crucified between two thieves and he died as a substitutionary sacrifice for our sins. He did not deserve to die. He came into the world for that hour to die as a substitutionary sacrifice. In fact, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No other human being has ever been able to make that claim or to do what Jesus Christ has done. He died on the cross and then he said, It is finished. He went and was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea the third day. God raised him from the dead, right? Because God saw that this was his son and he had completed perfectly the work for which he had sent him, sent him to do. And he was raised, not just to be risen from the dead, but raised for our justification. That's what the Bible says. And then, in this 40-day period, he comes to his disciples and he shows the many infallible proofs that it's him in their midst. This is the interesting thing. After he'd said what he needed to say, surprise, surprise. I don't think the disciples really knew what was going to happen next, but it was a spontaneous moment. Jesus had finished what he had to say to them in commissioning them over that 40-day period. Suddenly, he starts to get lifted off the earth and he starts to head to, towards heaven. That's what happened. I don't care whether people believe it or not. It's the Bible. It's the Word of God. I tell you, it's the Word of God and that is what we believe. He started to rise from the earth, right? See, I'm telling you now, the Bible will challenge you from page one. It really will whether you believe or whether you don't. In the beginning, God. If you can't get past that, you might as well shut the book because everything after that will challenge you to believe and it will challenge your faith with mind-bending facts about a living God that's in love with a sinful world. He starts heading towards heaven. Bible says again, a cloud received him. What was happening with these disciples? It says that they just, they were just gazing up as you would. They were just locked in vision. You couldn't believe it. What was happening to them? A glorious ascension. And then suddenly, now this is the important thing. They get interrupted by two men who are dressed in white. And they, they interrupt this wonderful moment with a very probing, direct question. Let me read to you verse 10 of Acts chapter 1. It says this, And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them, in white apparel, who also said, 
Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come in like manner as you saw him go. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ is going to return to this earth in the same way that he went up. They, that is the scriptures. That is the word of God. But I just want to, as I close now, I want to draw our attention to this interrupting question. Because these men had a world to reach. They had people to meet. Jesus had commissioned them to wait in Jerusalem and then to go out into Jerusalem and into Samaria and to Judea and even to the ends of the earth with this wonderful news, this glorious gospel and to proclaim it. The hope that they held in their heart, the expectation that they waited for, put them to work in the harvest field with men and women. And when you study the book of Acts, you see, you see that for the next 30 years, they were empowered by the Holy Ghost to go all over their world and establish the kingdom of God, wherever they went in power. And what did, they what did they declare? What was their simple message? The very message that Paul declared to Titus, that he encapsulates the wonderful gospel in when he points to that first appearing of when Christ came into our world, offering salvation to all men, and that imminent return, that future second appearing that is on the horizon. And they saw wonderful salvation wherever they went. They were waiting, they were waiting, but they were working. Simple message, simple message. We hold a blessed hope in our heart, an eager expectation that we look towards when we will see him as he is in all of his glory. And we will go into the air to meet him with his saints. We hold that, that eager expectation, that waiting in our hearts. But on the same hand, that waiting causes us to work. There are family members, loved ones that we hold dear in our hearts that have not yet received Christ. They may not be at a place at this moment in time where their hearts are open to Jesus. You've tried, you've pleaded, you've, 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 you've tried to explain best you can in simple form the wonderful news of the gospel and you've gone away feeling like a fool. That's fine. Many of God's servants have gone into their world, this dark old world, and be, been faced with the hard realities of a world that's stooped in reason and argument and angry against God. Many a man and woman have gone into their world and come back feeling just like us. What can we do? We can pray. We can pray. Pray for your loved ones. Pray for your colleagues. Pray for your friends in school. Pray for the people around you. And also, beyond them, look for others that are ready to receive. Look for others whose hearts are open like Lydia. Heart opened by the Lord. They're ready. They're ripe in the harvest. Our hope is in what we wait for. But it empowers us to work in our world and reach as many as we can with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen. I'm going to pray right now. Father, I thank you for your people today. Thank you for their open heart. Lord, thank you. You know us, each one of us by name. Thank you that you never leave us or forsake us, that you're always with us. Lord, I pray that again, we would be those that hold 
this blessed hope in our hearts that we would eagerly look and await for your, appear, for your appearing to see you as our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That this, Lord, would fill our mind and our thinking and our hearts. It would be the joy that our life is energized by. But Lord, in waiting for you, I pray that we would be those that work wherever we are and we would also find the great pleasure of leading oh, men and women everywhere in, in a simple prayer, Lord, that we would be that bridge. Oh, there's such a joy. There's such a rich joy when you, when you just get that moment and you, you pray with somebody to receive Jesus in simplicity, to see the joy on their face and to, to sense the joy and the rejoicing in heaven that takes place with just one sinner turning to you like we turn to you. Lord, I pray, I pray that for each of our lives, for each of our lives, You'd reward us with hundreds of souls, thousands of souls. We would just become just like soul winners, fishers of men. And it wouldn't be our duty, but it would just be the overflowing delight of a hope that we hold in our hearts as we look back to your first appearing when salvation came through your wonderful sacrifice and as we look forward to your imminent return, your second appearing. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.